From Miami Law, I'm Annette Uges, and this is The Explainer. And the reason that they get paid more in terms of amount is because they're more successful than the men, that they play more games and therefore are able to collect more compensation than the men do. Welcome back to the Miami Law Explainer, the legal affairs podcast where Miami law experts lend context and historical relevance to today's headlines. On November 8, 2019, a U.S. district judge certified a class action filed by members of the U.S. women's soccer team seeking to be paid the same as the members of the U.S. men's soccer team. With us today is Miami Law's legal referee, Sergio Campos, an expert on class actions and complex litigation. Let's go to executive producer Catherine Skip with the interview. Good morning, Sergio. Thanks for joining us for Put the Cap on the Season. Oh, Catherine, thanks for having me again. In the long-lived equal pay lawsuit by the U.S. Women's National Team, a California judge ruled something this month. What what, what was he talking about? Okay, so on November 8th, uh, uh, Judge Klausner in the Central District of California certified a class action uh, that was filed by the the women, United States women's soccer team against the uh, United States Soccer Federation, uh, asserting equal pay uh, claims under Equal Pay Act and claims under Title VII, which prohibits gender discrimination in employment. So the judge didn't really resolve the merits of the claims that are being mm-hmm. made. He simply said that the case could proceed as a class action. Okay. Um, so the women have had a tough slog in the courts, and this feels a little like they're making headway. Um, it's still a long road to changing compensation packages? Probably, although this case seems to be moving a lot faster than uh, I normally see in, in this type of litigation. Uh, I believe that the complaint that was filed in the Central District was filed in March. Oh, okay. And the judge was able to rule on their motion for class certification in November. That doesn't seem like a, a very fast turnaround, but it actually is for federal courts. Mm-hmm. And uh, the one issue that I find interesting here that you don't tend to see in a lot of these types of cases is that in most class action type cases or multi-district litigation cases, usually you have lots of plaintiffs in mm-hmm. the hundreds, the thousands, the ten thousands. And here we're talking about a class of about 25. That's the number of players on the roster at any given time. And then they have a, a they, they're, they're starting a different class action for, uh, for damages for pay that they should have earned. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's going to extend to players that were on the roster from 2015 onward. That increases it to 50, but it's still kind of small by class action standard. Because we're talking about like big tobacco and Tyson foods that, that are huge kinds of class action. Exactly. We're talking about uh, conduct typically by uh, multinationals or definitely uh, interstate corporations that have a large national market, and they do something that affects a large number of consumers. And so in this case, we're talking about less than a less than 100, which is pretty small by class action standards. Mm -hmm. But interestingly enough, the case law will, the case law has permitted class actions to go forward with classes as small as 40 or 20. And the judge made actually a pretty interesting point. He said that one thing that's supportive of the class action here is that the players are pretty geographically dispersed. Okay. And so it might make sense to have, since they're all raising the same claims with respect to the same policies, one action in one place rather than having different actions in different places across the country. Okay. 
Why doesn't the Lily Ledbetter uh, decision or act come into play here? Well, um, the Lily Ledbetter Act was meant to address a Supreme Court case that was decided right before Obama began his, uh, his first term. And um, in that case, the Supreme Court basically said that um, in order to file a Title VII case, you had 180 days after the discriminatory act that caused it. And so if you don't find out about the discrimination until years later or weeks right. later or months later, then you might run afoul of that really short statute of limitations. And so what the Lilly Ledbetter Act did was essentially say that every time you get a paycheck that is based on discriminatory conduct, that restarts the clock. Okay. And so um, I'm not sure if it's really come up here. Uh, it seems this case seems to be more focused on trying to change existing policies for current team members, mm -hmm. although they are asking for damages from about 2015. Mm -hmm. um, Lily Lebetter probably helped with those types of claims. Mm -hmm. So that way you can go back as far as four years ago in order to collect relief. Okay. Um, don't you have some big class action conference coming up? Well, I'm glad you asked. Um, so <laughs> University of Miami in partnership uh, with some, for some other organizations and with some law firms uh, has hosted for the past four years a class action and complex, complex litigation forum uh, Every winter this year, it'll be on January 24th, 2020 on the University of Miami campus. Uh, it is uh, one of the premier forums, not only for discussing class action issues, but class, uh, issues arising out of multi-district litigation, where a lot of very complex litigation is now treated. Mm -hmm. um, and it's interesting because uh, the U.S. soccer uh, the U.S. women's soccer case had one interesting wrinkle with respect to multi-district litigation. Uh, they, parties actually sought to consolidate under the multi-district litigation statute, which is 28 U.S.C. 1407, um, before filing for a class action. And the consolidation order was denied because it was so small. Mm -hmm. Because the idea behind multi-district consolidation is that if you have separately filed cases all across the country against a single defendant, for a common course of conduct, it may make sense for pretrial purposes to have all of those cases uh, processed by one court and one judge in one place. Mm -hmm. um, but in this case, there was at the time they were seeking consolidation, there was only two cases filed, one in California, one in Illinois, and the multi-district panel is like, that's just too small for multi-district purposes. And as it turns out, a class action is probably the better vehicle for dealing with this. Mm -hmm. But if you want to learn more about multi-district litigation and class actions, I highly encourage you all to attend the Class Action and Complex Litigation Forum in on January 24th at the University of Miami. A good time will be had by all. <laughs> not a shameless plug at all. No, not at all. Um, so back to soccer and cleats and all those things. Um, so if you were sitting, if you had the pen, you had the robe, and you were sitting up there on this case... What would you be considering and how would you be thinking about ruling? So the case is a little more complicated than I thought it would be. As it turns out, here's the reason why it's complex, at least from based on my initial review of the facts. On the one hand, none of the facts are really disputed. I think all the parties sort of agree that, they, that the women are paid differently from the men. The argument that the defendants are making is basically that the men have negotiated a more a, a risk heavier form of compensation based on games played and wins. And so uh, 
the men's soccer players actually get paid less in terms of amount than the women's soccer players get paid. The, women's make, the women make the argument that they are paid at a rate that's much less than the men in terms of games played. And even though, and the reason that they get paid more in terms of amount is because they're more successful than the men, but they play more games and therefore are able to collect more compensation than the men do. Got it. Yeah. Um, but uh, but the women have also, they, they both are represented by unions and they both have negotiated collective bargaining agreements for their compensation. And the women have negotiated something that's a little less risky and involves more guaranteed pay. Mm-hmm. Um, and defendants are basically arguing that that's the trade-off that's being made. They're getting paid less, but their pay is more guaranteed than the men are. Mm-hmm. And so there's really not the disparity that doesn't look, there's really not a disparity when you really look at it in terms of the the trade-offs that the players are making. Um, but I think the women have, what they have on their side is they're making a good claim that not only is are the rates, the, the rate of pay lower, but their conditions of employment are much, are, are, are worse relative to the men. They have less chartered flights. They tend to play games and in, in, in worse venues, worse field conditions. And when you start to add up that evidence together with the lower rate of pay, it does start to look like they're just being compensated less than the men. Mm-hmm. Didn't this almost go off the rails because they were saying, well, these women stars, Megan Rapino. Rapino, I don't know, I have problems with that. You know, and a few, a handful of others are making salaries much better than the men. Right. And I think uh, it's an interesting litigation strategy. On the one hand, you have the stars serving as the class representatives for the women. Mm-hmm. You have Alex Morgan, and the case is called Morgan versus. United States Soccer Federation. You have Alex Morgan, Megan Rapinoe, uh, Carly Lloyd. These are the biggest stars of the U.S. women's soccer team. And one of the arguments the defendants made is that they can't they, they can't be adequate representatives of the class because they're representing everybody, and not all of the women on the team are superstars mm-hmm. like Alex Morgan or Megan Rapinoe. But I do think as a litigation strategy, you may want to put the stars first and foremost in order to generate attention to the issue. And it's clearly worked in this case. Mm-hmm. Cool. What else should we know? Um, just uh, it's an interesting case. Definitely something to pay attention to. I think the compensation issues are a little bit more complicated than they appear to be on first glance. But I do think they have a really compelling argument about their conditions of employment. Mm-hmm. And uh We'll just have to see how the case proceeds and how the court ultimately rules. What's the next step? Next step after certification is uh, litigation will continue. They'll go into discovery. There's already been a little bit of discovery, but I think they're going to continue some more. Um, Typically after class certification, settlement settlement talks typically really ramp up. Mm -hmm. And so you can expect maybe some talk of settlement before actually going to trial. If not, then... Um, I wouldn't say trials around the corner, but it's definitely getting closer. Mm-hmm. Go girls. Go girl. Thanks for joining us. And you know, thanks for having again, me. Thanks for the end of the season. And we'll see you in January. Thank you, Catherine. Today's episode is brought to you by the University of Miami School of Law's concentration in the business of innovation, law, and technology for law students looking to focus on legal issues relating to startups and mature technology firms. For more information, visit www.law.miami.edu 
forward slash B-I-L-T. Thank you.